morning, church. <clears throat> Welcome to the Outpost. We are in a series called Truth That Transforms. Hope you brought a Bible with you today. We're going to be in the book of Titus, and uh, today we'll be in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, speaking about theology today and why it matters. And um, I'm going to read these seven verses for us this morning, and then we'll pray and and help make sense of, uh, of the context of the passage. So let's pray this morning. Um, actually, well, let's pray. Let's do that too. Let's pray. God, we love you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for, for just an awesome opportunity to be here and to worship you. God, there is truly no one like you. And God, thank you for your grace and favor that have allowed us to be here. For those that may be home, God, watching right now in this moment or later, Lord, would you use your word today and dial our hearts into you, illuminate your truth for us. God, underscore areas of our lives where we may, God, be off base, off track. It's easy to get that way in today's world. And so, Lord, dial us in to you as we run to you and lift high the name of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Starting in verse 10, <clears throat> as you know, Paul is, is writing to Titus. Titus is on uh, this little small island uh, in the Mediterranean uh, called Crete, and um, <clears throat> he has left him there um, to establish the churches and establish leaders within the church. That's the context that Chris talked about last week. So with that, we pick up in verse 10. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's easy to read that and go, what? Sometimes somebody will say something on the team and you go, yes, that just jives. You got people in your life like that, that they just say it in a way that you get it. Chris Dowd is one of those people for me, right? And, and since I missed last week's staff meeting, I was out of town, uh, had a phone conversation with Chris and Chris just kind of summed it up in this picture. And he said this, he goes, John, I just want you to think about it like the terms of a gospel sandwich. These seven verses have something beginning and ending. And I'm like, yeah, I know that. But then I had to, it had to be highlighted for me. So I'm just going to give to you what he gave to me that helped me clarify. I want you to see this. Titus 1.9 is in the Bible. Titus 2.1 is in the Bible. And it's before and after this text. Titus 1.9 says he must, he's talking about qualifications for elders. The people that Titus has been commissioned to train and equip and raise up. They must be, they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction to, say it out loud, church, sound doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. 
Then you get seven verses of what's bad. Seven verses of an example of what's, don't follow this. This is really bad. And then on the back end of that, in chapter two, verse one, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with, say it again, sound doctrine. That book, that, the way this thing starts and ends is very important today because you're gonna find yourself maybe in the middle of these seven verses going, what? Okay, so what's that got to do? It's very important. It's very important. So with that said, our teaching team has three things off of these seven verses about bad theology and what bad theology teaches. Number one, bad theology teaches that I am ultimately good enough. If I turn the lamp on that, what is that word for today's world and culture? It's called secular humanism. That's what it means. That's the big word. Let me read the verses of Scripture again, verses 12, 13, and 14. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. Paul grabs somebody from their own culture. One of your own people has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Hey, guess what? That's a true fact. That's a true statement. It's true. true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Everybody say myths. And the commands of people who turn away from truth. Within this Greek culture, for someone to call someone a Cretan was synonymous with saying they're a liar. If they're talking, they're lying. If it's words, you've got people in your life like that. If it's coming out of their mouth, you cannot trust what they're saying. Somebody just popped in your head, all right? That's, they, they did. I know it. I know it. Because we got people like that. That's what Paul is saying. They're lying. And so lies, uh, of course, are communicated how? By the tongue. That little small part of the body behind a cage of teeth. And yet the tongue is so very powerful, isn't it? I mean, have you ever been just, just having a bad day? You ever been in a down moment of life and somebody comes along and with the power of their tongue, they encourage in a way that just frames it up for you, that just gives you the extra step needed to keep moving that day. That's the power of the tongue. Yet how many of you have ever had somebody with the power of their tongue where they cut you to the core? They just jabbed you. And, it, and for whatever reason, the way, maybe it was coming from them, maybe the way it, it, just, it just hurt. It's like, ah, and you just can't get it off your mind. You're like, why do I keep thinking about it? That's the power of the tongue. That's why there's no exaggeration when Proverbs chapter 18, verse 31 warns that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Secular humanists. They typically describe themselves as non-religious, generally find absolutely no value whatsoever in the worship of God. They would choose rather to be guided by personal experience than the Word of God and, and will lean back on their own wisdom, their own intellect, their own ability to navigate and guide through situations than something from the authority of Scripture. Christian author, speaker, Dawn Dyson, probably a name you've never heard before. Uh, She's a graduate of Liberty University. I found her name off the Gospel Coalition website, and she's got a quote here that I think is of value for us. 
She says, secular humanism endeavors to dismantle religious authority from society, institutions, and government, replacing the same with alternatives founded in realism and individual rights. It is a self-refuting philosophy, a false religion that believes in unbelief, which must be ascribed to in spite of scientific improbability, historical failure, and interior contradictions. Secularism is ultra-conforming and oppressive to the human being. Its chief opponent is Christianity on the basis of morality. Secular humanism. The verses of Scripture that I didn't read again to you are verses 10, 11, and 13. Look at what Paul specifically says. For, these, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, the Jewish traditionalists who uphold their traditions over the supernatural. They're all about what their beliefs in the, the circumcision party. They must be silenced, Paul says, since they are upsetting whole families and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply. So you think, well, that just, maybe Paul's just saying just ignore them and walk around them. Mm-mm. No, he's getting, he getting real serious right here. That word, uh, be silenced and sharply rebuke them, that means muzzle them, shut them up. And the best way to muzzle them is put truth in their mouth. They must hear truth, facts, the truth of God's word. Secular humanism, church, if you're not very careful, it will, it will just creep its way right on in to our thinking and our way of doing things. That's why Ephesians 5, 11 is in the Bible. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Turn the light of the scriptures on and expose those, that secular humanistic way of thinking with the word of God. Number two, bad theology teaches that there is no objective standard. That's ethical relativism. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences have been defiled. They are defiled. This is ethical relativism. What does that mean? It's the position that there are no moral absolutes. There's no moral right and wrong. Instead, right and wrong is determined on the basis of social norms. To put it plainly, if a person believes that abortion is morally wrong, then it is wrong for them, but maybe not for you. It might not be wrong for you. But if it's wrong for them, then it's wrong for them. But if it's right for you, it's right for you. That's what we're talking about. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, guess what? It leads to death. You can be, I mean, you can believe all day. Um, Gravity doesn't work. Okay, let's go to the roof. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong period. 
Judges chapter 17, verse 6, this is a great illustration. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Guess what everyone did? What was right in his own eyes? Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. That's ethical relativism. There is a truth. There is a right and wrong. This is the moment, like the, this pinnacle moment of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Um, John chapter 18, verse 37 where Jesus says, listen, I need you to understand something. For this reason I was born, for this reason I came to testify to the truth. John 14, 6, he makes this audacious claim, right? This, this, this proud, bold, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Jesus is it. There are moral absolutes, and there is a right and a wrong. Number three, bad theology teaches, I don't need God. I don't need God. I mean, I'm all right. You're all right. I'm kind of my own. I just make my own decisions. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Basically, I say I follow God. I mean, I go to church every Sunday. I check the box off. I mean, I even sang the songs. I, I mean, I followed along. How many people in the, in, in the world today will find themselves in a house of worship checking the box off? I mean, they're, they're, they're going through the motions, yet when they leave the building, the way they live their lives, how they move and breathe operates in a practical, atheistic way. That's what it means. R.C. Sproul has a great comment here on his website. He says, what is deadly to the church is when the external forms of religion are maintained while their substance is discarded. This we call practical atheism. Practical atheism appears when we live as though there were no God. The externals continue, but man becomes the central thrust of devotion as the attention of religious concern shifts away from man's devotion to God to man's devotion to man, bypassing God. The ethic of Christ continues in a superficial way, having been ripped from its supernatural, transcendent, and divine foundation. Practical atheism dismisses the notion of the authority of God. It is not an outright denial of God, it is more of a subtle disregard for God. That's practical atheism. Thomas Watson says it a different way. Some brag they have good hearts, but their hearts are crooked. They hope to go to heaven, but their steps take hold of hell. How they're living does not back up what they're saying. Jesus had a comment about this, a great comment, a passage of Scripture. Uh, in Matthew chapter 15, um, the Scripture says that the Pharisees and the scribes came from Jerusalem to Jesus, and they're asking him questions. Hey, we noticed something about you and your disciples. Y'all don't follow the traditions. What's up with that? How come you don't follow the traditions? Like, we've got these things. Everybody else is doing them. Why don't y'all? What's the, with the traditions? Like, how come you're not? The traditions. 15 verses 1 through 9, specifically verses 8 and 9, I put it on the screen for you. Jesus says this, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. I wonder how many today would, would, how many of you, maybe? I mean, could Jesus make that statement about you? I mean, you came to bedrock, you stood, and you worshiped with your lips. But your heart, your heart is far from me. You don't even consider me. I mean, you're just, you're just practical atheists. The way you live, the way you move and ebb and, and, and the flow of your life, when's the last time you even talked to me? I mean, I gave you my word, you don't even open it. You've got nine copies in your house. You even know where they all are? We, it's easy, it's easy for you and I to get into this, I'm okay, you're okay, I'm good. And before we know it, we're, we're falling in line with these. Let me show them to you one more time. Bad theology teaches, I am ultimately good enough. There is no objective standard. I mean, that sounds good. I hear from my kids a lot of times coming home from public school. Who's to, well, dad, I mean, I don't know why they're, I mean, they're, they're choosing that type of a lifestyle. I mean, what if God made them that way? Excuse me? What if God made them that way? Well, I understand you're friends with them and, and, and you like them and, and they might play on your same team with you, but there is a right and wrong that we have to surrender to. We have to, and I understand that we gotta, we gotta do this in a loving way, but there's a point where you have to shut them up. That's what Paul says. Rebuke them, muzzle that because it is infecting people. It's very easy for you and I to go, I don't even need God. What was your last major purchase? How much time did you spend praying about it? I mean, this is, you don't even have to go outside the church. I can remember as a, as a I mean, I'm in college. I wasn't even in seminary yet. And I was on staff at, at Fincastle Baptist Church in, in North Carolina. North Carolina. I was on staff at Fincastle Baptist Church in Fincastle. And, and they, um, man, I'm just the youth guy, but I preach twice a month. And then this, this older gentleman, the gray hair, who was retired, who was just filling pulpits in the Roanoke area. I'm sharing a, a sermon illustration one Sunday morning about how I was standing in line at a department store to buy something, and I kind of got convicted about it because I really didn't need it, and, and I ain't got enough money anyway. We're just young and just married, and, you know, we, we ain't got two nickels to rub together, you know, kind of thing. And, and, I, and so I just felt convicted about it, and I put it back on the shelf, and I was using it as an illustration. He comes up to me after the sermon, and he goes, that's the dumbest thing ever. I was like, uh, excuse me? He goes, I don't think God cares if you bought a tennis racket or not. Why didn't you buy the tennis racket? I'm like, because I felt like I didn't need to buy it. Like, well, get off my back, bro. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm not like Mr. Debater Arguer in the moment, you know? And I'm driving home, and I'm like, that philosophy says that there's the sacred, and then there's the secular. Like, I've got this sacred part of my life that God cares about, but then there's the secular part. God doesn't care if you, what you buy or what you don't buy. And now I'm like, shouldn't he be like a mentor kind of? Like, what, what, what does he know that I don't, maybe I don't know something. Like, huh? No. The Bible says my God owns it all. He's my God. He's my master. He cares about every detail of my life. You see how easy that would have been? I can remember how easy it is to operate like this and being the young new guy right out of seminary 
coming into the staff meeting and, and, and the, going through staff meeting and, and just kind of going, oh, that's, that's how this works. And later at lunch, the, the senior pastor, who it should, in my opinion, always be Jesus. That's his role, not mine. And, and yet, um, I'm like, hey, can I ask you about prayer? Like, how much does prayer play into, like, staff meeting? He's like, oh, yeah, we probably should have prayed. Why don't you pray at the next staff meeting? Huh? Okay. And literally, the next week rolls around, and I walk in, and we sit down, and, and he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to pray. Johnji wants to pray for us. Okay. Listen. Listen. God is my witness. I'm sitting there at the table. And he's like, oh, yeah, Johnji wants to pray for us before we begin staff meeting. And I was like, okay. Um, God, and I remember under the table going, why? Why should this moment feel so awkward for me as a pastor on a staff with men who call themselves elders leading God's people? Why does this feel so awkward? Listen, this is where secular humanism comes in. We don't need, we can make decisions on our own. I mean, he's been in ministry for 30 years. He's been in ministry for 25 years. They, these guys are experienced in navigating difficult things. And yet, as just young and dumb and just going, okay, wait a minute, no, I don't ever want to lose that I am desperate for God to guide. Locked and tethered to his word, not leaning on, well, I know how this is going to play out, and I know people, and I know circumstances. You see these in your own life? You ever, you ever find yourself in, in situations where you might just be banking on you? Instead of this, this way of living that is absolutely tethered with sound doctrine on truth. October 26, 2017, the Lord reminded me this morning of an illustration when I'm trying to figure out how to make this applicable. And, and I remembered something five years ago that I was sitting in an airport in Nepal. Um, I was with an organization called Axe International, and they're, uh, they're all about church planting in Nepal and India. And uh, because I'm, I've church planted before and, and coached a couple others, that, that's why I was on the team. And so we were, we were traveling all over the base of the Himalayas, um, interviewing these young pastors who were basically looking for funding to plant a church in their village at the end of the day. And so we walk into these rooms and take our shoes off because you're not allowed to wear shoes in the rooms and culture and all this stuff. And, and I'm listening to testimonies and I'm asking some questions because I've traveled the road of church planting a little bit. And so now I'm, we're, we're in this little small airport and we're getting ready to get on, you know, one of those hoppers where you're like, oh, dear Jesus, just get me to the next destination, you know? You kind of come through the door and you're like, oh, wow. And you sit down, you know? Um, that's what we were waiting on. And, and this airport was just slam packed with people. And we got to wait like a couple hours, right? I got no cell service. I got no, you know, I don't have games on my phone because if I did, I'd probably just waste a lot of time. So I'm like, eh. So 
in that moment, and there's people eating, right? And some of the, some of the team members are like, let's go get some food. I'm like, good luck with that, bro. You're going to get you some, you know, shish kebab rat over there in the corner. Like, I ain't, me and Jesus are going to do real good with these peanuts I'm nibbling on right now. This is, he's going to multiply this. Like, you're not eating anything. It's a good day to fast. And, and so, so I just resort to, like, people watching. And a lot of times in those scenes, I just kind of say, God, what do you want me to see? I mean, right now, this is, you don't waste time. What do you want me to capture? And people are ebbing and flowing and coming and going. And, and then all of a sudden, these, these two Buddhist monks come in and sit right in front of me, like 10 feet from me. We have an immediate connection, right? Because we're both, we get, both got head shaved, right? So I'm like, hey, <laughs> game recognized game, you know, Chris? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> now, we're dressed very differently, okay? I'm not in, in, a, in a big robe, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, and, and dude to my left had these beads, these long beads. And the beads were like, you know, these like one-inch balls. And they were all together. And he's got his hand on them, and he's like thumbing through the beads. And every now and then, through the hush of the crowd, I would hear this you know, so, and I don't know, does that kind of, you're, you're in right now, aren't you? You're on the edge of your seat. There's something about that that just kind of sucks you in. You're like, dude, what is he doing? It's like deep voice. And I'm just watching. And then all of a sudden, it hits me. Those men lead people. I said, hey, what's the dude like Shogun Warrior in front of us? Like, what's he, what's he, what are the beads? What's he doing? And the guy said, he's praying. That's what he's doing. And every bead represents something, and he's, he's praying through his regimen. Sitting here, I'm sitting across from these guys, and I'm like, huh, what's different? What's different from them and me? I mean, there are people that might be watching them and watching me going, which one of y'all is right? I mean, who am I to say that they're wrong? I mean, these men are devoted. While I was there, I heard the story of a monk who went up behind his village into the mountain in a cave and cemented himself, leaving only the opening for food and water to be brought to him twice a day, and he lived in the cave for two years. Why? To remove all distractions and hear from God. That's devoted. I, mean, I, I, I can't touch that kind of devotion. That's devoted. That's, people would say, man, that's admirable devotion. Admirable devotion won't get you to heaven. This is why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is so important. That we're saved by faith. We're saved by faith because of the grace that's been given to us, not by works, least any man should boast. The guy that I saw at Monkey Temple in Kathmandu, learning from his Buddhist monk and all the things that he was doing and, and the motions that he was going through to dedicate himself to his God. 
there is something that when I see that and I go, man, I don't, I don't know that I'm that devoted to my God. That's real. I don't know that I, I'm, I'm 100% all the time. My God wants to talk to me. He longs for me to show up and sit and just listen and speak to him. And that man put himself in a cave for two years and heard nothing. Nothing. You see, the world is okay with what you've done here today. By and large, the world is okay that you came, that you checked, I go to church. You can say that at work and people not throw you out and you're not going to lose your job for it. They're okay that you find value in worship. They're okay that every now and then you may drop the name of Jesus as long as you keep Jesus in the same pen with Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius and, and Gandhi and whoever else. But the moment that you pull Jesus out and say something different, now we got a problem. Now we got a problem. Because you see, these two guys and me, we're all going to end up in the same destination. And we're going to stand before one true creator God. And if in that moment he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Because I was dedicated to praying to you every day. Because every bead represented, and I did it 20 times a day. I did it 100 times a day. I devoted my life to you. I, I sacrificed. I didn't do these things that everybody else does. And, and I... I I, I didn't watch television. I didn't do this. I didn't, I, I, was, I was this moral good. Listen, if your answer in that moment, if their answer is anything other than because of the blood of Jesus Christ that washed my sins away, you're wrong. You're dead wrong, according to the word of God. And the thing that in this moment that all I had in my brain, it, it, it was... The difference between them and me is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That's all I have. Because if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, then my God is just like theirs. Just a good teacher. Just a good moral dude. So then he can stay in the same pen with all the rest. But because, because he rose from the dead, because... The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is what sets us apart. That's the difference from everything else. So even you who might sit here today and go, yeah, they're probably more, maybe better than you, more devoted to you. That's admirable, right? Admirable acts don't get you to heaven. This is what Paul is saying to Titus. There are many among us who are into this philosophy, these myths, these traditions. They may worship with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, Jesus said. Would he say that about you today? Has truth transformed your life? Has it transformed your way of living? If not, where are you? I want to give you one passage of scripture as we close. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Are you today transformed by truth? Is there anywhere in your life, anywhere in the ebb and flow, the rhythms of your life that you would say, man, I've got some practical atheistic ways. I've got some relative, ethical relativism that's, that's crept in. The way I view my friends, the way I view family members. Eh, I don't know that I'm going to say that it's wrong for them. Any secular, humanistic ways that have crept into your thinking that this morning, I wonder if God would find you here at this altar or there in your seat saying, God, would you just just anchor me that I would be rooted in truth of the good news of Jesus Christ? Though the rest of the world may run away, I will stand flat-footed on the word of God. Let's pray this morning. God, would you use your word in our hearts this morning, Father, as we ponder and think through what truth has been set before us. God, many, many, even in this room, have questions about you. Many stand with Pilate and, and say, what is truth? God, we all come from different backgrounds and different experiences, perhaps many different abuses that have happened in our lives, that have creased us in some way, shape, or form. God, would you be so loud this morning in our hearts. I pray this morning for those who have yet to surrender to you. God, would you so illuminate your love for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross that's completed, it's finished. Today, we get to put our faith and trust in Christ and be transformed by your Holy Spirit that's deposited into our lives as a guarantee of our inheritance. God, would you remove shackles from our mind and hearts today? God, have your way in this place as your people say yes to you. Use your word that we might bring you glory with the way we live. In Jesus' name.